You're listening to the Mens Rea Podcast, and this is the story of Siobhan Hines. Cantar Nanolin is a cluster of low-lying islands situated off the northwestern edge of Galway Bay in the Connemara Gaeltacht region of Ireland. It is worlds apart from the hustle and bustle of Galway City, which is located just 56 kilometres away. Like much of Connemara, Irish is the main language spoken by locals, and the area has a strong association with traditional culture, heritage and character. Some of the islands in the archipelago are linked to the mainland by a series of bridges and causeways, the largest being Letter Mollen, Garmna and Letter Moor. In 1988, just over 500 people lived in Letter Moor. The local economy was fuelled mainly by an influx of teenage students from all over Ireland to the nearby Irish language colleges that ran during the summer months. However, winters in Lettermore could be long and dark, and with just a few scattered pubs and small grocery shops on the island, there wasn't much else for the young people of the area to do except drive around the winding roads listening to music or maybe chance their luck at getting served alcohol in the local pub or disco. Like all of her friends, Siobhan Hines enjoyed the sense of security that came with living in such a small, tight-knit community where everybody knew everybody else. While she had been shy as a child, she began to come out of her shell when she started attending the local secondary school, and her bright and friendly personality made her popular among students and teachers alike. Her love of music had helped her to form strong friendships with other like-minded teens, and she was a talented singer and musician. Having just turned 17, Siobhan had not yet reached the legal drinking age of 18, However, as was the culture at the time, teens often started going to bars at the age of 16 or 17. There had been a national crackdown on venues serving alcohol to underage drinkers in the previous 12 months, resulting in a number of licensed premises being shut down. But many bar workers still turned a blind eye to their underage patrons. Siobhan normally went out on a Saturday night with her friends, first hitting the local pub for a few drinks before travelling ten miles by taxi to the nearest village of Ankararua, where a local disco was held every week. And so, on the night of Saturday the 5th of December 1998, her mother Breed dropped Siobhan and her 19-year-old sister Anya to Teague Plunkett, a local pub near their home, telling them both not to be late and to be careful. After spending a few hours in the local pub, the group of friends got ready to travel to Ankararua, where the recently built Ostan Nadolin ran weekly discos for adults. Another premises further up the village also ran a disco for youths. Siobhan was initially reluctant to go to Ankararua, telling her sister Anya that she wasn't too pushed. But when a friend agreed to drive the group there, Siobhan changed her mind, saying that she would go for the spin, though she didn't really intend on going to the disco. They arrived in Ankararua just before midnight, and Siobhan's sister Anya left to go into the Ostan Adolin disco. 
The hotel was the first commercial landmark on Ankararu's main thoroughfare, which was a one-kilometre stretch of straight road lined on one side with a pedestrian footpath and a series of low stone walls. The road was long, and the bars, shops and restaurants were spread a few hundred metres apart along either side, with detached houses and empty plots of land filling in the space in between the businesses. A number of other young adults, including the driver of the car, went with Anya, leaving Siobhan alone in the car with her friend Paul. The pair weren't romantically involved, but they were good friends, and they passed the time easily, chatting and listening to music on the tape deck. As they sat there, Paul noticed a big blonde man walking past. When the man came past the car again a few minutes later, he stopped and stared in at Siobhan, but the pair took no notice of it at the time. After sitting for a while, Siobhan said she needed to go to the toilet, so she got out of the car and crossed the road to Railchnamajan pub. Unfortunately, one of the doormen on duty at the bar was also employed as a school bus driver, and he recognised Siobhan as one of his regular passengers, so she was refused entry on the basis of being underage. She returned to the car, but at 20 to 1, she left again, saying she was going to head up to a nearby chipper's called Onfadog, to use the bathroom there. The chip shop was just under a kilometre away from where the car was parked and the walk should have taken her less than 15 minutes. She began walking in an easterly direction along the main street towards the turnoff for the Lettermore Road where Onfadog was located. Having attended secondary school in Onkararua for the previous five years, Siobhan felt at home in the village and knew it like the back of her hand. But Despite her ease and knowledge of the area, she never made it to the restaurant, and she never made it back to her friend's car. After a while, when Siobhan hadn't returned to the car, Paul became worried. It was very unlike her to take off and not return, so he began to search the village for any sign of her, but found nothing, and none of the staff at Onfadok had seen her either. By the time the driver of the car returned from the disco some time later, Paul had already looked in every venue in the village, but hadn't found Siobhan. He couldn't understand why she hadn't returned. Siobhan's friends eventually travelled back to Lettermore without her, assuming that she had taken a lift home from somebody she met on her way to Anfadog. Meanwhile, once the disco in Ankararua had finished, Siobhan's sister Anya travelled back to Lettermore separately, unaware that Siobhan had not been seen since earlier that night. On arriving home, she noticed that her sister had not returned, but thought nothing of it, as it wasn't unusual for Siobhan to stay out later with her friends. So Anya left the front door of the house unlocked for her. When her mother Breege woke the next morning, she realised she hadn't heard Siobhan come home during the night. She went to her daughter's bedroom to check on her, but found the bed hadn't been slept in, and the room was exactly as it had been the night before. It was very out of character for Siobhan to be out of contact for so long. She had never stayed out all night, and Breege was sure that she would have phoned if she'd intended to do so. Breege began to ring around Siobhan's friends to see if she had stayed at any of their houses, but when it dawned on her that nobody had seen her daughter since the previous evening, she began to panic and phoned the local Garda station to report Siobhan missing. Siobhan's family and friends knew instantly that something was very wrong. Her father, Andy, headed into Ankararua with his two other daughters to look for Siobhan, 
while her mother Breege stayed behind at the family home waiting for Garda Pat O'Connor to call and take a description of her daughter and the details of her disappearance. On learning that Siobhan hadn't returned home the night before, her friends got a taxi back to Ankararua to see if they could find any trace of her. The bitterly cold day went on with no sign of Siobhan, and as the cloudy December evening began to close in, one member of the search group went looking for torches so that they could continue to look for her. But by the time he had returned, he heard the news that Siobhan's body had been found. It was at twenty past three that afternoon, along a wild and beautiful stretch of rocky foreshore on the beach of Tishmon, that Siobhan's body was discovered. The beach was two miles south of Ankararua in a rocky inlet. Tommy Kelly, a local farmer, was out hunting for rats and crows with his dogs when one of his cocker spaniels raced ahead of him. Mr. Kelly followed her to see what had attracted her attention, and he noticed a girl lying on her side in a narrow side channel at the shore. Her feet were caught in one jagged rock edge, and her right cheek was resting in the recess of another. The tide was out, but it was on the turn. Kelly approached the girl, and when he saw what looked like blood coming from her nose, he asked her if she was all right. He got no reply, so he moved closer and asked again, before realising that the girl was deceased. He then ran towards the village of Ankararua to inform Gardi. News of the discovery spread like wildfire through the close-knit community. Siobhan's father Andy was in the village of Ankararua along with his two other daughters, Anya and 14-year-old Fiona, when they spotted a group of girls outside a shop. He was sure that one of them was Siobhan. He told his daughters to go over to the group and tell Siobhan to get back home, that, quote, half the country's out looking for her. But as the girl he had thought was Siobhan turned towards him, he realised instantly that it wasn't her. The three got back into the car and were just about to return home when they were flagged down by Andy's sister-in-law and the parish priest, who told them the awful news. Andy had to go to the beach to identify his daughter's body, while the parish priest travelled to the Hines' home to pass on the heartbreaking news to Breed. There were few obvious marks on Siobhan's body, but there were definite signs of a struggle, so Gardy sealed off the area and launched a full-scale murder investigation. The teenager's body was found fully clothed except for her underwear, and her jeans and platform shoes were undone, suggesting that she had been sexually assaulted. Her blue polyester fleece jacket was found near her body on the beach. Because of rising tides on Tishmon Beach, Siobhan's remains had to be moved, and it was thought that if she hadn't been found when she was, her body would have been taken out to sea, and valuable evidence would have been washed away. As Gardy began their murder investigation that evening, a local man named John McDonough sat in the Railchnamajan pub drinking. The 23-year-old builder's labourer had been the first customer into the bar that afternoon. McDonough had a reputation as an angry and aggressive person, and he was well known to the local Gardy. He had, in fact, been involved in a number of incidents in Ankararua the previous night. According to Rita O'Reilly, who reported extensively on this case, McDonough had been in a relationship with a local woman named Morabreed Shoaga, though her surname appears as the anglicised Joyce in most publications. Together, they had a five-year-old daughter, but their relationship had ended in September of 1998. This separation was not amicable, and on the night of December the 5th, McDonough had spotted Miss Shoaga with her new partner, Ryan Wilcox, in a pub in Ankararua. 
The couple noticed McDonough was glaring at them, and eventually they became so uncomfortable that they slipped out through the side door of the pub to get away from him. However, as Miss Shoaga and Mr. Wilcox queued to get into the disco at Ostan Adolin, McDonough appeared behind them and started shouting. There was a scuffle between the men, and once she got inside the hotel, Miss Shoiga called Gardie to report the assault. Three Garda members arrived in a patrol car to the hotel at around midnight, where they found McDonough in a very agitated state. The Gardie warned him that he would be arrested if he continued to cause trouble. After a while, McDonough left the premises and walked across the road to sit on the low wall opposite the hotel. Gardie remained in town to monitor the situation and noted McDonough's red Ford Mondeo driving in the town and parking in a recessed area by the Railtnamajan pub. Thirty minutes later, they spotted McDonough again, sitting on the stone wall across from the hotel. The guards pulled over and told McDonough to go home, but he refused. After that, the officers called out to McDonough's family home, hoping to speak to his parents to see if they could elicit some sense of accountability from him, but there was no answer when they knocked on the door and windows of the house. They returned to the hotel at ten past one, but by that time, both McDonough and the car were gone. The guards were still worried that he might cause further trouble, so they actively patrolled the area, but found no sign of him. McDonough wasn't seen again until half past two, when he was involved in another fight, this time outside on Fadog Takeaway, where a number of locals saw him hitting another man two or three times in the face. He was then observed driving from the village at around 3am. Superintendent Jim Sugru led the murder inquiry, and a team of 50 uniformed guardi and detectives began combing the beach of Tishmane and the surrounding areas, while officers also started door-to-door inquiries in Ankaharua and Tishmane. Gardi questioned the youngsters who had been in the company of Siobhan on the night she was murdered and quickly eliminated all of them from their inquiries. However, when they spoke to her friend Paul, he told them that when Siobhan returned to the car after being refused entry at Railtnamajan, she said that she had, quote, just met that weirdo John McDonough on the road. Siobhan's remains were taken to University College Hospital Galway where Deputy State Pathologist Dr. Mary Cassidy carried out a post-mortem. Dr. Cassidy found large amounts of seawater in Siobhan's lungs, leading her to determine that the primary cause of death was drowning. However, in addition to evidence of drowning, there were other injuries apparent on Siobhan's body, including marks to her neck, scratch marks on her torso, and injuries to her pelvic area. On Tuesday the 8th of December, officers combing a boreen 200 metres from Tishmane Beach found Siobhan's underwear, along with a much-loved necklace, which was a half-heart-shaped silver pendant, engraved with the word forever. Siobhan's best friend had a necklace with the corresponding half-heart pendant, bearing the word friends. The discovery of these items on the isolated laneway led investigators to surmise that Siobhan had struggled with her attacker and had been assaulted there before being brought to the beach and killed. Following the discovery of his daughter's necklace, Siobhan's heartbroken father made an appeal to help catch her killer, saying, quote, I never want any parents to go through what we've been through. The last few days have been just terrible. Please, if anyone knows what happened to Siobhan, contact the guardie now. The small communities of Lettermore and Ankararua were deeply shocked by the brutal murder of such a young and vibrant girl. 
Classes at the school Kumsa Kiran, where Siobhan was studying for her leaving cert, were cancelled for the next week as students tried to come to terms with the enormity of what had happened to their friend. On Wednesday, the 9th of December, a steady stream of friends and family passed through the Heinz house as they held a traditional wake for Siobhan. Before they closed her casket, Siobhan's best friend put her own half-heart section of the matching necklace pendant in with Siobhan. Siobhan's coffin was taken the short journey from her home to Lettermore Church for her funeral mass. As a member of the local choir, she had been preparing for Christmas celebrations in the church, but instead of seasonal carols ringing out, it was Siobhan's favourite song, the theme music from Titanic, that moved the congregation to tears. At the Requiem Mass the following morning, Siobhan's friends brought offertory gifts to symbolise who she was in life, a teddy bear to show the love Siobhan had for her family, a school diary to represent her many friendships, her favourite CD to symbolise her love of music, and a painting that she had completed to demonstrate her love of art. Several of the teens were overcome as they explained the significance of the gifts. At the conclusion of the Mass, Siobhan's uncle gave a moving tribute to his niece, asking the congregation to, quote, show their appreciation of Siobhan's 17 lovely years, at which point the entire church broke into applause. Afterwards, the whole community lined the road in a guard of honour as the coffin was taken to the local cemetery for burial. As Siobhan was being laid to rest, the hunt for her killer took a new turn when members of the Garda Subaqua unit began to search the sea off Tishmon Beach. Superintendent Sugru confirmed to members of the press that they were looking for a specific object, but he couldn't release the nature of the object, for operational reasons. A week to the day after Siobhan was last seen alive, a breakthrough was made when officers combing the beach and surrounding area at Tishmon found her watch close to the scene where her body had been discovered. The watch had stopped at 4.30am and a Garda spokesman said that the find was significant. That night was a Saturday and a team of investigators handed out questionnaires to people who were socialising in Ankararua. The idea was that many of the same people would have been out on the night of Siobhan's murder and Gardi thought it was a good opportunity to come up with new leads in the case. Investigators were particularly interested in finding out how Siobhan had travelled the two miles from Ankararua village to the beach at Tishmon, though it was believed that she may have been given a lift by somebody she knew. The finger of suspicion had been pointing towards John McDonough from very early in the investigation. Some of the Gardee who were on duty when Siobhan's body was found had also been the ones who dealt with McDonough in the village the night before. It emerged that as the officers drove the road to McDonough's house to try and rouse his parents on the night Siobhan was murdered, they believed that McDonough himself may have been driving on a parallel boreen leading off the main road to his home. And as the Garda patrol car came back up past the junction of this parallel boreen on its return, it was speculated that they may have just missed McDonough's Red Mondeo heading down towards the foreshore beyond his house. Like most of the locals in the area, McDonough had made two witness statements to Gardee on December 7th and 8th. While giving his initial statement, Gardee noticed a number of scratches up to five inches long on his side and arms. McDonough seemed worried about them, but claimed they had happened during the altercation with his ex-partner and her new boyfriend outside Ostanadolin. 
He was asked for a blood sample, which he gave, and when Gardy requested that he hand over the top he was wearing on the night of December 5th, McDonough gave them a white hooded Adidas sweatshirt with blue stripes. However, this didn't match with witness accounts and CCTV footage, which showed McDonough in a bar in Galway city centre early on the evening of the 5th wearing a white v-neck jumper. And so, at half past six on Monday the 14th of December, a team of 15 armed Gardee, led by Superintendent Sugru, surrounded the home of John McDonough in Ankararua. They brought him to the district headquarters at Salt Hill for questioning. They also raided McDonough's family home, removing his red Ford Mondeo, along with several items of clothing, including a white ribbed v-neck jumper that would prove to be crucial to their case. McDonough was questioned for 12 hours before being released without charge. Two days later, Superintendent Sugru appealed for any witnesses who may have seen Siobhan getting into a car shortly after a quarter to one on the morning of her death to come forward. While acknowledging the excellent cooperation of locals so far, Sugru said, quote, We feel there may be people out there who have important information without realising the significance of it. I'm hoping that this latest appeal will help jog people's memories. He said that the investigation had intensified and confirmed that sections of the car seized in the Monday morning raid had been retained by Gardee and sent to Dublin for forensic examination. He added that Gardee were determined to bring the investigation to a successful conclusion and confirmed that they were following a number of lines of inquiry. According to an article written by Declan Varley for the Irish Examiner, Following Superintendent Sugru's appeal, Gardy amplified their presence in Ankararua as threats were issued against McDonough. Siobhan's heartbroken family gave an interview for the Christmas week edition of the City Tribune, in which her parents appealed once again for anyone with information to come forward. They spoke to journalist Kieran Tierney in their family kitchen, where birthday cards in celebration of Siobhan's 17th birthday now sat alongside hordes of sympathy cards that had been sent from well-meaning supporters from all over the country. Siobhan's mother Breed said, quote, We are not going to have a Christmas. We are completely numb with the agony and pain. Siobhan was looking forward to Christmas and would have put up the tree and her own decorations. Andy Hines said it would ease the pain for the family somewhat if they knew that the murderer had been caught. He said, quote, Siobhan was a quiet girl at home, but when she went out, she was the life and soul of the party. She did what normal 17-year-olds did. She had good friends, and this was a happy home. If the murderer was caught, at least then we would know that this would not happen to another family. Breed said that she would have found it easier to accept her daughter's death if she had been killed in a car accident, rather than being attacked and left for dead, quote, like a ragdoll. On January 13th, 1999, McDonough was arrested again, this time on the back of forensic evidence related to the fibres found on the white v-neck jumper that Gardy seized in the previous raid. His mother, Maggie McDonough, was also taken in for questioning on suspicion of withholding information along with a third unnamed man in his twenties. As they were led away to be questioned, Maggie turned to her son John and was reported to have said, quote, Don't say anything and I'll stand by you. Mrs McDonough spent much of her time in detention singing Shanno songs and saying little else, apart from confirming that she had washed the white v-neck jumper since the events of December 5th. All three were subjected to 12 hours of questioning before being released without charge, 
though this time Gurdy announced that they were preparing to send a file of more than 500 pages to the Director of Public Prosecutions. Six months after Siobhan's murder, on June the 17th, 1999, McDonough was arrested yet again as he worked in a lorry yard in County Kildare. He was taken to Trim Garda Station, where he was charged with the murder and rape of Siobhan Hines. Following a number of court hearings, McDonough was released on bail to await trial. Due to a huge backlog of serious crimes waiting to be tried, it was expected that the case would not be heard for some time. However, McDonough's bail was revoked in September of 2000, when he was charged with soliciting a sex worker. John McDonough's trial finally opened on May 9th, 2001. He stood charged with the murder of Siobhan Hines, as well as a second charge of unlawful sexual intercourse, and a third charge of sexual assault in circumstances that included penetration by an object. He denied all three charges. The nature of the rape allegations meant that McDonough was given anonymity in the media for the duration of the trial, and the proceedings were held in camera, meaning members of the public who were not involved in the case were not allowed into the courtroom. In his opening statement, Dennis Von Buckley, senior counsel, told the jury that they would hear forensic evidence which would show how fibres from clothes worn by the schoolgirl were found on the accused's jumper and on the front passenger seat of his car. He also told the court that evidence of post-mortem would show that Siobhan died of drowning and compression of the neck after being subjected to a vicious sexual assault. The prosecution, said Mr Buckley, would call witnesses who would allege that as Siobhan sat in her friend's car outside Austin Nadolin that night, a quote, big blondie fellow in his twenties was sitting on a wall near the car and that he, quote, passed by the car on a few occasions and looked in. Mr Buckley added that they would allege that this man was John McDonough and that neither he nor his red Ford Mondeo were seen anywhere in the village of Ankararua during the time it would be alleged that Siobhan was raped and murdered. Breed Hines was one of the first witnesses to be called to the stand. She broke down a number of times as she told the jury how she had dropped Siobhan to the pub in Lettermore on the evening that she died. She said that Siobhan was always happy and smiling, and that she didn't have a regular boyfriend, but she had been asked to the upcoming Deb's Ball by a local boy. Siobhan's sister Anya gave evidence that Siobhan had been reluctant to go to Ankerarua that night. However, she said that Siobhan had eventually changed her mind and decided to go. When they got to Ostanandilin, Anya said that she left her sister in the car and never saw her again. The second day of the trial opened with retired guard Pat O'Connor giving evidence of how he spoke to the accused in the aftermath of the altercation between McDonough and his ex-partner at Ostana Dillon. Presented with a white-ribbed jumper in court, the now former officer said that it was similar in every respect to the one that he remembered the accused wearing on the night in question. The sleeves were rolled up, he said, and he'd been standing close to him for some time, and he'd noticed no marks on McDonough's arms. Retired Garda O'Connor said that McDonough was very agitated, and the three Gardee had tried to calm him down that night before he walked across the road and sat on the wall. As the officers left the premises a while later, they saw McDonough's car turning around on the road before pulling into a recessed area beside Railt Nabajin pub. At around half past twelve, O'Connor said that the Gardee noticed that the car was still there, 
They also noticed Siobhan Hines sitting in the passenger seat of another car, with her friend in the back seat. On driving past the hotel a second time, the patrol car pulled up beside McDonough, and the retired Garda said that he'd told McDonough to go home, to which McDonough had replied, quote, It's a free fucking country. O'Connor said that he and his colleagues later went to the McDonough family home and that the lights were on and the key was in the lock, but nobody answered to their knocking. They continued patrolling the area, he said, wanting to find McDonough and his red Ford Mondeo. Quote, the fact that John McDonough was not at home, I was concerned about his whereabouts and his condition that night. McDonough's ex-partner, Moira Breed Shoaga, told the court that she and her new boyfriend, Ryan Wilcox, had encountered McDonough at the Railtnabajan on the evening of December 5th, 1998, and that McDonough's behaviour was so intimidating, the pair had left at the side door of the pub to get away from him. A short time later, she said, as she and Mr. Wilcox queued outside Oston Adilon, McDonough appeared behind them and started verbally abusing the couple, before assaulting both of them. When she got away, and as she stood in the hall of the hotel waiting for the guardee to arrive, she said, quote, I could see him through the window outside, pacing. He was pacing for a while, and then he left. In cross-examination from Barry White, senior counsel for the defence, Ms. Shoiga said that McDonough had been enraged with her for a while before that, since she'd broken up with him. Tommy Kelly, the farmer who had discovered Siobhan's body on the beach at Tishmon, told the jury how he routinely went hunting with his dogs for rats and crows in the area. He said that on Sunday, December the 6th, 1998, he spotted some crows and magpies on the foreshore and had gone out with his dogs and his single-barrel shotgun. Mr. Kelly described how, once on the shoreline, his cocker spaniel raced off ahead of him. He'd followed her to see what had drawn her attention and it was then he'd seen Siobhan's body. Mr. Kelly said he'd called out asking if she was all right twice before realising that she was dead. Mr. Barry White asked the witness if he had noticed anything unusual in the area the night before, to which Mr. Kelly replied that he had been up a number of times checking a cow that was due to deliver, but he hadn't seen or heard anything unusual. After this, Deputy State Pathologist Dr. Mary Cassidy gave evidence of post-mortem examination to the jury, telling barrister Paul Coffey that she had determined Siobhan's cause of death as drowning with a contributory cause of compression of the neck. Dr. Cassidy said, quote, Given the severity of the injuries to the neck, there is a strong possibility that Ms. Hines was already unconscious when she went into the water. According to Dr. Cassidy, in addition to features of drowning and injuries to the neck, the postmortem showed evidence of sexual assault. This included severe injuries to the vagina, as well as injuries to the anus. The neck injuries suggested that the girl had been gripped with sufficient force to fracture the larynx, but that this pressure was released before it could cause her death. Dr. Cassidy also said that scratch marks on Siobhan's lower torso were caused before her genes were put back on, and that these and the presence of grass and vegetation inside her suggested that the sexual assaults had taken place on an area of rough ground. Although when she was found, Siobhan's bra was fastened, the pathologist said that it had been pulled up at the front to expose her breasts, and her jeans were on but unzipped. The laces of her platform shoes were also undone. Defence counsel Barry White asked Dr Cassidy if a fall on the foreshore could account for the injuries to Siobhan's neck, to which the pathologist replied, No, there are very distinct patterns of injury here. The neck is one of those areas of the body that is partly protected, 
and it would be extremely unusual to fall and get these injuries without there being similar injuries elsewhere in the body, and there were none of these present. After a break for the weekend, the trial reconvened on May 14th, when a male acquaintance of John McDonough gave evidence. He said he'd worked with the accused for a few weeks before the killing. He told Dennis Von Buckley that he and McDonough had spent the day of December 5th in Galway City, drinking in a number of pubs. Then, a young woman who was in the same year as Siobhan Hines in school said that she had met McDonough by chance in a hotel in Air Square. She said he was wearing a white v-necked wool top and that he had the sleeves pulled up to the elbows. Later that night, she said she saw McDonough in a local pub in Ankararua at around 10pm and he was wearing the exact same top. The girl saw him for a third time at around half past two on a path across from Onfado Chip Shop, but at this time she said he was wearing a black t-shirt and black jeans. A friend and neighbour of McDonough then recalled for the court that he had bumped into the accused in a local pub in the early afternoon of December 6th. He said that McDonough was wearing a dark t-shirt and that he'd noticed marks on McDonough's arm. The man said that the marks were an oval-shaped arc similar to a top set of teeth and he joked with McDonough that somebody must have been hungry last night. He alleged that McDonough said it must have happened the night before at the chip shop as some guy had started on him and McDonough had given him a couple of clouts. Following this testimony, the trial heard from a waitress who was thought to be the last person to see Siobhan Hines alive. The girl was working part-time and the night of Siobhan's death, she was returning to the hotel where she worked to get an asthma inhaler for a friend who was waiting for her up the road. The waitress said that she met Siobhan on the roadway at about a quarter to one or ten to one. Siobhan greeted her and the waitress said hello back. She said that once they'd passed each other, Siobhan had continued walking in a direction away from the hotel. The waitress's friend, who was sitting on a wall further up the road, waiting for the inhaler, said that she'd seen a car coming from the hotel direction. It stopped nearby and she'd heard a car door open and close, but she didn't see anyone as the lights of the car were off. The car moved off and the witness thought it strange that the car had indicated left but had then made a right turn. On Tuesday the 15th of May, the court heard from a former friend of McDonough's who testified that he saw McDonough twice on the night of the killing, once in the pub early in the evening and then again at about a quarter to three outside the chip shop. He said he came across McDonough again the next day and noticed, quote, scratch marks on both arms. The witness told the jury, quote, he was distant. He was quieter than usual, very quiet. Two days later, the man said he spoke to McDonough on the phone. McDonough had asked him if Gardy had spoken to him, and then he wanted to know what questions they'd asked him. McDonough went on to tell the man that he had an alibi for his car because it was parked outside the local hotel all night. The witness testified, quote, he told me he was talking to Siobhan Hines that night. He said she approached him and said, how are you? And he said, how are you back? He went on to say that McDonough had claimed that Siobhan asked if McDonough remembered her. And when he said no, she had told him she had had a one night stand with his friends a few years back. The friend said that he had then asked the accused if he told Gardy that he had spoken to Siobhan and McDonough said that he hadn't. The next witness, a local teenager, told the prosecution's junior counsel, Paul Coffey, that he saw McDonough hanging around and fighting outside on Fado Chip Shop at around half past two. 
He said that McDonough hit another man a few times across the face with his fist. Prior to that, the witness said he had not seen McDonough in the vicinity at all. Then the man who had been hit by McDonough outside the chip shop gave evidence in Irish, admitting that he was, quote, quite steamed and that he'd left the disco at around half past two. He said he could remember meeting McDonough outside the takeaway, but that he couldn't remember much more. The witness told the court, quote, I think he hit me. That's as far as I can remember. Another witness said he spoke to McDonough near the chip shop and that he seemed very angry with Ryan Wilcox. McDonough told the witness that he had a scuffle with Mr. Wilcox up at Ostan on Dolin and that he had gone home and gone to bed, but the situation was, quote, wrecking his head and he couldn't sleep. So McDonough had got up and went out to look for Wilcox again. The trial continued with a steady stream of local witnesses, all giving their accounts of how and when they encountered John McDonough in the early hours of December the 6th, 1998. A next-door neighbour told the court that he was being dropped off near his house at about 10 to 3 when the accused pulled up behind him and they had some small talk. The neighbour said that McDonough seemed a bit agitated as he told him about the fights he had been in that night. They spoke for around 15 minutes and it was exactly 3am when he got home. On May 21st, Inspector PJ Durkin testified that when he took an initial witness statement from John McDonough on December 6th, 1998, he noticed scratch marks up to five inches long on his side and arms. When asked about the scratches, McDonough said that in the course of the row outside Oston on Dolin the night before, a lot of women were there and that was how he had gotten the injuries. Detective Sergeant Jerry Roach told the court that the accused was, quote, extremely worried about the scrape marks on his arms and had fretted over how he would explain them. Mr Barry White asked if any photos of the injuries had been taken, and Detective Sergeant Roach conceded that Gardie hadn't taken any, despite the presence of a Polaroid camera at the station. Superintendent Jim Sugru gave evidence next. He had retired in the two years it had taken to bring the case to trial. He told the Central Criminal Court that he approached McDonough at Ballygoran in County Kildare on June 17, 1999. As the superintendent identified himself, McDonough had said, quote, I know, I know. The superintendent then described McDonough's reaction as they prepared to handcuff him, saying the accused had held out his two hands together at the wrists, and Sugru alleged the accused had said, quote, put them on, I was expecting you. On behalf of his client, Mr Barry White suggested to the superintendent that McDonough, quote, never spoken those words, and went on to say that the accused denied ever having made such a statement. The most compelling evidence in the case came on the 11th day of the trial, when a scientist from the state lab Dr. Louise McKenna testified that numerous fibres matching Siobhan Hines' clothing were found on the jumper worn by John McDonough on the night of the killing. Fibres matching Siobhan's clothes were also found on the passenger seat of McDonough's car, and two red acrylic fibres that matched a seat cover in his car were found on Siobhan's clothes. Dr. McKenna said that the fibres from Siobhan Hines came from three different items of clothing, her jumper, jacket and socks, and that the possibility that these collective fibres could have originated from a source other than Siobhan Hines was very remote. 
The doctor confirmed that her findings gave very strong support to the theory that Siobhan was in contact with McDonough's jumper and that she had been in his car. The day after Dr McKenna's evidence, a jeweller named David Brennan told the trial that Siobhan's watch had stopped at half past four, suggesting that this was the time it was submerged in water. Mr Brennan said that he believed the watch would have short-circuited instantly when the water hit it. Following Mr Brennan's evidence, the jury was sent away for a week as legal argument began in its absence before Mr Justice Patrick Smith. This legal argument related to two things, one being the lack of evidence relating to the ordinary rape charge and the other being who would be allowed in the courtroom when John McDonough took to the stand. As the proceedings were held in camera, only people who were directly taking part in the trial were allowed to be in the courtroom. McDonough's legal team used this condition to have a number of members of the Hines family excluded from the courtroom as he gave evidence. When the court reconvened on June 5th, the prosecution called evidence of McDonough's second arrest in January 1999. During the course of this interview with Gardee, when asked to explain why fibres from Siobhan Hines's jumper and fleece were found on his jumper, McDonough replied only, quote, go and find out who did it. Detective Garda Thomas O'Shea told the court that when asked to tell the truth for the sake of his family, McDonough responded, quote, I can't. When McDonough was again presented with the information that forensic scientists could link him with Siobhan, the accused was alleged to have replied, quote, I know I cannot dispute what the scientist says. Gardee put it to him that it was the truth and McDonough replied, yes. The interviewing officer had then asked him, quote, it was never meant to happen, was it? McDonough was alleged to have replied, no. Under cross-examination, Barry White asked Garda O'Shea about the particular dialect of Irish that he spoke. Garda O'Shea said that he spoke a Munster dialect of the language. He affirmed that there were, quote, some differences between Munster Irish and the Irish spoken in Connemara. Mr White said that his client would tell the court that he wasn't able to follow the Irish spoken by the detective and that he would also contest the replies recorded in a written memo of the custody interview. The defence barrister put it to Garda O'Shea that when asked to tell the truth, the more accurate version of what McDonough had said was, quote, I can't because I know nothing about it. Garda O'Shea refuted this, saying, quote, I recorded what he said. On June 7th, McDonough's defence counsel asked to recall the deputy state pathologist for further cross-examination. When Dr Cassidy took to the stand for the second time, she was questioned about a report she had written for Gardee minutes after finishing the post-mortem. The report stated that the fracture of the larynx and bruising to the neck, in absence of asphyxial signs, suggested that Siobhan Hines had been grabbed by the neck, quote, to restrain rather than to strangle. Dr Cassidy told the court that she left her final post-mortem report open-ended. It was also factually incorrect, she said, because of the term absence of asphyxial signs. The pathologist confirmed that this should have instead read lack of asphyxial signs. Dr Cassidy said, quote, all I can say is that had I not found features of drowning, I would have had no hesitation saying that this girl died from asphyxia as a result of a fracture on the neck. The defence case opened on June 8th and John McDonough took to the witness stand himself. He said, quote, I did not do it. I would not do it. 
McDonough alleged that he spoke briefly to a girl that he did not recognize on the night that Siobhan died. That was as far as it went. He denied recognizing her from another occasion when she was with a different youth in a car owned by McDonough. According to the accused, there were, quote, many girls in his cars over the years. Questioned by Mr. Von Buckley on whether he thought he was particularly attractive to girls, McDonough responded, quote, Not that I'm attractive to girls, but I know a lot of girls and they know me and many girls come up to talk to me that I don't know. He denied telling a friend he had gone home to sleep after the incident at Ostan on Dolin before returning to the village because he couldn't sleep. He also denied that he had an oval-shaped mark on his arm the day after the killing and said he couldn't remember his friend drawing attention to it in the pub that day either. McDonough also refuted evidence given by one of the witnesses who said he saw him driving his red Mondeo up a road from the direction of Tishmon Beach and his family home in the early hours of December the 6th. Throughout the trial, the prosecution had called a number of civilian witnesses who all said that they did not see McDonough between half past 12 and 2 a.m. However, in his evidence to his defence counsel, Mr Barry White, McDonough said that he sat in his car for a while and also walked around the village, but that he did not meet anyone he knew until later in the night. When cross-examined about the forensic evidence and fibres found on his white jumper, McDonough contended that he had clothes of a similar type to Siobhan's, as did his sisters and brothers. The wine-coloured fibres, he said, were like maroon, which was the Galway County colour. Quote, that's the year Galway won the All-Ireland and many people would have had jumpers of that colour. When it was put to him about the fibres that matched his car seat covers that were found on Siobhan's clothing, he had a similar defence. Many people in the locality had those same covers, he claimed. In fact, the man who had found Siobhan's body had them, and McDonough suggested that perhaps the man could have contaminated her body with the fibres. Of the incident outside the hotel when he assaulted his ex-partner and her new boyfriend, McDonough said, quote, It should not have happened. I was embarrassed about doing it. He said that his statements made by him in the course of his Garda interviews were taken out of context, especially his comment that it was, quote, never meant to happen, which McDonough claimed he said in relation to the assault on his ex-partner and not the rape and murder of Siobhan. He also said that Gardie did not take a full note of his replies. When asked why he produced the striped Adidas top to Gardie rather than the white V-neck jumper, when they asked him for the clothes he had been wearing on the night of the killing, McDonough said that Gardie had asked for a top and not anything in particular. McDonough admitted that he changed his jumper earlier in the night, but said that this was because it had a tear in it and he didn't want to get it damaged any more than it already was. McDonough told the court that between half past twelve and half past two, he'd sat in his car for a while and also walked around to a number of places in the village. John McDonough's evidence concluded on the evening of Friday the 8th of June, and when the trial resumed the following Monday, the jury heard that one of the two rape counts was withdrawn, after Mr Justice Patrick Smith heard legal submissions from the defence that there was insufficient evidence to support it. The remaining rape count that of rape with an object, remained for the jury to decide. The final witness for the defence was a local woman named Peggy McDonough, who worked for a local hackney cab office. She claimed she had seen Siobhan Hines between a quarter to two and two a.m. on the night of her murder, but Peggy later admitted that she was unsure of the sighting. Then Mr Barry White gave his closing speech on behalf of his client, saying, quote, 
This was not a murder inquiry. This was a witch hunt against my client. However, in the prosecution's closing speech, Dennis Von Buckley said that the evidence given by the accused himself from the witness stand supported the prosecution's case. Mr. Von Buckley also asked the jury to ignore the testimony of Peggy McDonough because she was contradicted by several civilian witnesses and had admitted that she was unsure of the sighting herself. There was an abundance of circumstantial evidence in the case, he said. He referred to the fact that McDonough had knowingly handed in the wrong jumper to Gardee and pointed to the forensic evidence linking him to Siobhan Hines by fibres found on her clothing and in his car. The jury deliberated for 11 hours before returning unanimous verdicts of guilty of murder and guilty of rape with an object. As cries of yes echoed from the supporters of the Hines family, John McDonough threw his arms out, shouting, quote, Oh, for fuck's sake, I didn't do it. His sisters sobbed and his mother embraced him. Mr. Justice Smith then handed down the sentence, saying, quote, In relation to murder, I am obliged under statute to impose a sentence of life imprisonment, and I do that now. At this, McDonough lowered his head to the courtroom bench. His family surrounded him as he sat crying for several minutes, before he shouted, quote, Jesus Christ, how the fuck could they find me guilty, while thumping his fist off the top of the bench. His mother, Maggie McDonough, reeled around the courtroom in a state of near collapse. Mr Justice Smith adjourned the court for five minutes to allow the crowd to regain its composure. Sentencing for the rape charge and leave to appeal were held over until the 23rd of July. Speaking after the life sentence was handed down, Andy Hines said, quote, It's just, but we'll never get Siobhan back. The McDonoughs, they will get their son back someday. I'd like people to remember that. Two days into his sentence, John McDonough received minor wounds to his neck and forearm in a knife attack in Wheatfield Prison when he was set upon with a blunt makeshift knife. A spokesperson for the prison service said that prison officers had intervened and broken the incident up and that medical officers had attended to McDonough but no treatment was required as the cuts were superficial. McDonough was transferred to a secure section of Mountjoy Prison following the attack for, quote, operational reasons, while an investigation into the incident was carried out. On the 16th of July 2001, McDonough lodged documents with the Court of Criminal Appeal against his murder conviction. Just over a week later, on the 23rd of July, he was sentenced to 10 years for the rape of Siobhan. Mr Justice Smith ruled that the sentence was to run concurrently with his sentence of life imprisonment for her murder. On July 31st, a letter to the editor written by Andy Hines was printed in the Irish Independent. It read in part, quote, I would be obliged if you will allow me a little space in your newspaper to express my family's grave disappointment at the sentence handed down to John McDonough for the brutal rape of my daughter last Monday week. As you probably know, McDonough was convicted and sentenced for her murder on June 17th, and it is very painful for us to learn that this evil person will not serve an extra day for that horrendous crime. In my opinion, concurrent sentences should be questioned. McDonough sentenced my daughter to eternity. He sentenced me and my family for as long as we live, while he is sentenced for only a few years. John McDonough's appeal was rejected after a two-day hearing in 2007. He has always maintained his innocence and in 2013 he launched a bid to have samples that were taken during the investigation re-examined. 
The Irish Innocence Project had McDonough's case looked at by scientists in the US, and in judicial review proceedings against the Garda Commissioner and the state, McDonough argued that the Guard's refusal to permit his experts to access the forensic material was contrary to natural justice and fair procedures. He claimed that it breached his rights under the Constitution and the European Convention on Human Rights, including access to the courts. However, his claims were denied. In 2018, a documentary series aired on TG Cahar about grief, called Tukt Namahar. During an episode featuring Siobhan's death, her mother Breed spoke of her love for her daughter and how she believes that McDonough should never be released. Breed described one childhood incident where Siobhan had found a mouse in the kitchen. Her mother went to get the cat, but on seeing how scared the mouse was, Siobhan wanted to let it go. Her mother said that they could let the mouse escape if Siobhan promised not to tell anybody. Breed later compared the situation to how her daughter died, saying, quote, I often compare the things that happened to her with the mercy she showed the mouse that night. She was in the mouse's position a while later, and she wasn't shown any mercy. Thank you for listening to Mens Rea, a true crime podcast. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Mens Rea Pod, or you can send an email to mensreapod at gmail.com. This podcast is made possible in part from generous donations by supporters on Patreon. Special thanks to Samantha Rivera, Mark Cheshire, Deirdre Dooley, Betty Donovan, Jill Barnfather, Ballier Bull, MSC, and KR. Please do check it out at patreon.com forward slash mensreapod. Our theme music is Quinsong The Dance Begins by Kevin McLeod. Additional music is by Juanita Meisel and Kevin McLeod. This week's episode was researched and written by the one and only Aileen Spearin. Additional writing and production was by me, your host Sinead. All sources for today's episode can be found in the show notes or on our website, www.mensreapod.com. And so, till next time, don't do anything I wouldn't do. Canter na nolan, 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 canter na nolan, nolan, canter na nolan, kumsika, kums, ach, kumsika, kiran, were skull kumsika kiran, skull kumsika kiran, ostan na dealing, ostan na dealing. Ostan undealing, ash ostan undoling, ostan undoling, dolin, ostan undoling, ostan undoling, ostan undoling, ostan undoling, called chuck, called tuck namar, tucked, called tucked namar, maher, tucked namar, called tucked namar, called tucked namar.